Hi, George. What are we doing here? What are we doing here? It's Red Fence! Red Fence. Do your homework! Yeah, well, speaking of difficult marriage moments, I'll read this uh, this quote from Brown. Marriage. <laughs> <laughs> she says, I think marriage is insurance for the worst years of your life. During your best years, you don't need a husband. You do need a man, of course, every step of the way. And they are often cheaper emotionally and a lot more fun by the dozen. <laughs> the single girl lives by her wits. She supports herself. She has had to sharpen her personality and mental resources to a glitter in order to survive in a competitive world. And the sharpening looks good. Economically, she is a dream. She's not a parasite, a dependent, a scrounger, a sponger, or a bum. She's a giver, not a taker, a winner, and not a loser. Why else is she attractive? Because she isn't married, that's why. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh man, I just feel like she's asking for it. Yeah. She's just she's, in your face. She's, she's not afraid of offending you, that's for sure. <laughs> so, so her tone and word choice... They remind me a little of Betty Friedan's description of housewives, which we talked about in the last episode, like these women who are consumed with the petty details of daily life and who have no self of their own to speak of. They're kind of empty shells. Mm -hmm. And Brown is portraying married women as dependent parasites, as losers, as takers. And I think it's wonderful that women today, whether married or single, whether old or young, can pursue careers of their choosing and can't be discriminated against by employers on the basis of their sex. But appreciating those gains and equal opportunity shouldn't have to come at the expense of women who do the necessary care work of society, which is always underappreciated and is either unpaid or severely underpaid. You know, and I think Brown is championing a form of feminism in which some women get ahead and some women get to enjoy that glitter and some women are attractive and successful. Others are like the ugly bums who'll have to fight to keep their husband's interests in an office full of flirts. <laughs> it's just the, the scenario she sets up. It, it really bothers me because it's a competitive vision rather than one of solidarity and cooperation or understanding that women live in seasons. You know, first we're all single and then many of us marry and many of us have kids and then no matter what, we all get old. <laughs> and so like this, this glittering, sharpened, witty, independent, young single girl is just this little snapshot of life. Like she can't last forever, right? She emerged from a home in which she was cared for sacrificially by her parents, and she'll someday have to fall back onto the care and charity of others after retirement. And so this portrayal of herself as superior because she's a giver, not a taker, because she supports herself, I just feel like it's too narrow to recognize the holistic nature of our life cycles. You know, we exist because of the love of other people, and in the middle of our lives, we can pretend we're fully autonomous and convince ourselves that we can stay young forever, but really... Independence is a phase that we enter at 18, hopefully, <laughs> and exit whenever we get sick or old, you know, which is probably what Brown is referring to by saying, you know, marriage is insurance for the worst years of your life. So, but it seems petty to me that Brown grinds those sponging housewives under her glittering high heels, you know, like she was raised by a housewife. So it strikes me as an example of this brand of feminism that rejects the older generation, that rejects solidarity with the mother. And that's writing exclusively to younger women. Yes, Exactly. It's targeted, you know, and I want to add, like, as a mother of three sons who I hope will get married someday and give me grandchildren, you know, I shudder at the thought of them encountering a girl like Helen Gurley Brown, you know, a girl who would view them as cheaper emotionally and a lot more fun by the dozen. You know, like, I'm raising my voice to be responsible, to be chivalrous, Yay, honest, chivalry, chivalry woo <laughs> you know, and, and hardworking and, and, and the thought of a girl using them and discarding them. Or if they're already married, like tempting them to infidelity by being the other woman, that breaks my heart, you know. And I think I think men deserve a lot more respect than Brown gives them because there are a lot of good men out there, and those good men are not safe around a woman like her. <laughs> That's how I feel. <laughs> so, yeah, that quote yeah. about marriage is one of the many groaners in the book. <laughs> which I and when I was reading it, I was like, oh, I'm just gonna hate that. <laughs> But I can't believe I'm defending her. This girl. Maybe I'm tired of defending her. But I'm going to try. I'm going to keep going. In for a penny. But the charitable way to see it is against the culture that insisted a woman wasn't anything unless she had a husband. Yeah. I mean, my grandmother was born in 1923. So one year after Brown. Hmm. And she basically never slept alone. And I mean that entirely literally. Wow. As a young woman, she went from sharing a bed with her sister to sharing a bed with my grandfather. Wow. And they had a lovely marriage and a lovely life together. And I'm sure it wasn't easy being without him when he passed before her. I think she was about eight years before she died that he died. Mm. And I would love as many people as possible to have that kind of long and happy marriage. But early marriage just doesn't suit everyone. Right. 
Which, of course, doesn't mean I find her attitudes towards men, as expressed in this book, attractive. Yeah. <laughs> but I still don't... I can't muster... I, I can't manage to see her as that threatening. Hmm. Because I see a lot of her attitude as a kind of brave front, where she's hmm. staking out the territory of sexually active singlehood as an act of war. Hmm. Because it really hadn't been said out loud. Yeah. And I think that overall... The book is actually largely about how to prepare to be a wife hmm. under the guise of enjoying the unmarried life. <laughs> As for your sons, I think that sadly, by today's standards, Brown is positively conservative in her viewpoints. <laughs> She's actually interested in chivalry. It's true. It's true. <laughs> I, I know young men who have been told by women they've dated, I like you, but I just want to play the field. Ah! I mean, gross, yeah. right? Yeah! And what a terrible thing to say. I could be wrong, but I don't think Brown ever really could have envisioned hookup culture. Mm. Because even at her most bombastically cavalier, she had too much respect for herself <laughs> and for the men she fancied. Yeah. It's barely present in Brown, but it's much more obvious in this, like, I like you, but I want to play the field. It's this idea that it's FOMO. It's oh, this idea that yeah. women think, oh, because I can have sex with all these men now and not be a slut, mm -hmm. that if I'm not doing that... I'm not maximizing my potential, which is a really fucked up way to think about it. Yeah. I'm granting that. Yeah. But what's interesting about that is that now you see that, like, women are actually reacting to what other women are doing. Yeah. It's not even about, they've, like, we've just, the, the plot about what to do with a man is completely missing, almost. It's like, hmm. oh, it's not like the, these women can't get a man. It's like they feel like when they get one, they've lost instead of won. And so that really is like totally that the inverse of what Brown yeah. is saying, right? Yes. Even yeah, it's yes. ironic though, because, right, because we can, we find in the text where she's like, oh, just string them along. <laughs> but it's that still, even with that terrible language and that sort of cavalier attitude, it's still so different than why did all those relationships end, right? That's what I try to think about with Brown. It's like because she wasn't ultimately in love with them for one reason or another. Mm -hmm. And so when she found the one that she was in love with, she did all the things that you do yeah. to lock it in. Right. So. Yeah, that's true. Maybe she was thinking, oh, I'm getting old. But maybe she just never thought she'd find anyone that she really likes. That could be too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think Brown has some sort of self-respect, even if she uses all this language that we disagree with. And she also had the advantage of she wasn't dealing with porn adult cads. Right. I mean, she was dealing with, like, yeah. chivalrous men. Yes. <laughs> so here's Perry on this. The task for practically-minded feminists, then, is to deter men from cad mode. Our current sexual culture does not do that, but it could. In order to change the incentive structure, we would need a technology that discourages short-termism in male sexual behavior, protects the economic interests of mothers and creates a stable environment for the raising of children. And we do already have such a technology, even if it is old, clunky, and prone to periodic failure. It's called monogamous marriage. <laughs> ding, ding, ding! <laughs> a monogamous marriage system is successful in part because it pushes men away from CAD mode, particularly when premarital sex is also prohibited. Under these circumstances, if a man wants to have sex in a way that's socially acceptable, he has to make himself marriageable, which means holding down a good job and setting up a household suitable for the raising of children. He has to tame himself, in other words. Fatherhood then has a further taming effect, even at the biochemical level. When men are involved in the care of their young children, their testosterone levels drop alongside their aggression and sex drive. A society composed of tame men is a better society to live in for men, for women, and for children. Amen. Woo! Yes. <laughs> I said this board. before, I'll say it again. I think marriage makes men happy too. Yeah. Even if there's evidence to suggest that, in theory, monogamy is a bigger sexual trade-off for men. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. I think marriage will make most men happier. You know, it's interesting to what you said about Brown's ulterior motives earlier. Like, you said the book is largely about preparing how to be a wife under the guise of enjoying the unmarried life. I didn't catch that when I read it. You know, if it was present, I just totally missed it because her jabs at marriage and wives are prominent and frequent enough that that if there was a hidden longing there, I, I couldn't find the signal through the noise. But if you're she right about that... She never could have that, written the book if she hadn't gotten married. That, People wouldn't have taken her seriously. That's very interesting. 
Okay. I totally think All right. that. But okay, anyway. so it's softening my perspective on her a little bit, if that's the case, right? So, but I, and I just try to believe the best about her. But, <laughs> <laughs> but about Perry, I, I think her approach here, like, I, I like it because she's thinking holistically, right? She's looking at the big picture and the way that culture sets the incentives for behavior. And I like the framing of marriage as a technology. I think it's a great word for it because it enables us to see that humans created marriage as a tool to solve a number of very thorny and perennial problems related to the differences between men and women. Mm -hmm. And while it's not perfect, it's old, clunky, and prone to periodic failure, its purpose was never to be a system of oppression for women. In fact, the opposite, I would argue. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, like, once in place, of course, bad actors have used it oppressively, but blaming marriage for creating female oppression is like blaming cars for collisions. Like, (laughs) collisions are what happens when you've got bad drivers at the wheel or bad driving conditions or a car that's not sufficiently repaired, right? They aren't the point of driving. Like, you don't drive to crash. But female subjugation in marriage is what happens when you're married to a bad man or when the conditions for affection, reciprocity, and cooperation are unfavorable or when marriage isn't kept in good repair with just laws. Subjugation isn't the point of marriage. That's dumb. <laughs> and I think it gives bad men way too much credit. Well, adding onto that list would be when you have to get married to be taken seriously. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Great point. And so Perry presents marriage as this age-old tool that tames men and transforms them from cats into dads. The evolutionary biologist Brett Weinstein says that men have two modes when it comes to sex. Sew and go or stay and pay. (laughs) That's great. Yeah. And so it's either some form of promiscuity or in the ancient world or some parts of the world today, polygamy or monogamy. And by far the safest, least violent and most stable arrangement for women and children is monogamy. It's also the most egalitarian for men. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And so, so here's Perry's case for monogamous marriage. It discourages promiscuity in men. It encourages men to get their lives together and become marriage material so they can enjoy societally sanctioned sex. It facilitates fatherhood, which reduces aggression and sex drive. And it gives the best outcomes for raising kids. So both marriage and family life can turn men into gentlemen, right? It gives men limits, which help them to thrive. And when they're thriving, they facilitate the thriving of women and children. It's a case for the goodness of limits, right? For the goodness of being tamed. And so marriage is a beauty and the beast story. Right? Like it's meant to turn sex beasts into hubbies and daddies. <laughs> and this is in contrast to what I thought that Brown was depicting. And again, I could be wrong, but which is a story in which nobody is really quite tamed, you know, or that the tamed, the married, are kind of made fun of and looked down upon for being boring and frigid. And again, she ends up joining their ranks later in life. So maybe she doesn't really mean she's what she's saying. She's pre taming herself. Pre taming. Okay. <laughs> so. But that's the question, like, instead of bringing men into the realm of greater limits, there's this concern that it's bringing women into the realm of greater freedom and promiscuity. We like, definitely have a culture that is doing that. Yes. There's no doubt. That's right. And so it, it could be that I'm misreading Brown because her cavalier tone shocks me, but maybe she is more traditional than I give her credit for. Certainly chivalry and courtship is a component of being tamed, right? And even though she poo-poo's marriage a little bit, like, she highly values the rituals that typically precede it, and that's good. Let's quote Brown now on motherhood. (laughs) (laughs) She's got more groaners. (laughs) Besides making herself physically more inviting, the single girl has the freedom to furnish her mind. She can read Proust, learn Spanish, study Time, Newsweek, and the Wall Street Journal. Her world is a far more colorful world than the one of PTA, Dr. Spock, and the jammed clothes dryer. A single woman never has to dredge. She can get her housework over within one good hour Saturday morning, plus one other hour to iron blouses and white collars. She need never break her fingernails or her spirit waxing a playroom or cleaning out the garage. The girl who is hell-bent for motherhood is missing another great creative experience, which is to get paid for producing things in your head. Then she could have babies, but I guess if you've got a foal, you've got a foal. <laughs> such a groaner. I mean, it really is condescending. Yeah. I mean, it's the... The, her attitude is, like, unforgivable, but yeah. I, I read it as this brave front to defend this, what was at the time, undefensible. I mean, she's yeah. probably thinking this in the 40s. She's oh. writing it in the 60s, so it yeah. sounds liberationist. Huh. But, like, don't you feel like in some level she just felt, like, really societally kind of, like, at a loss? And she's, this is all just this, like, act of bravado to sort of, I mean, if you didn't want to get married and you lasted in that era until you were 38, like, people must have thought you were a pariah. Yeah. I so mean, so knows how much sort of, like, side glances she got from other women for being the way she was. You know, she puts on a brave front, but who knows how many tears she cried behind closed doors if she felt I mean, like she, she was... I mean, she probably thought there was something very wrong with her at least once. Yeah. Yeah. 
I don't know. I just hear it as like a cri de coeur because yeah. it's hard to know whether she really thought about it at, in any way other than personally. Like, did she right. really think it would scale? Did she care? Yeah. I mean, I guess she thought, yeah. she probably wanted to like, it's one of these like, it's the be nice thing, right? Yeah. She wanted to make women who weren't going to get married right away not feel bad about themselves. That's right? a good goal. That's a good goal, but I mean, if it goes to like, oh, should I tell my partner I don't like being choked during sex? If that's the end game of it, <laughs> it's Ooh, not good. No, no. Hmm. Yeah. So, so on this quote, I think that I think Brown is making the same assumption that Betty Friedan makes in the Feminine Mystique. Yes, and perhaps it reads also the same. Yeah, this and, drudgery thing. Exactly. Yeah, the drudgery, and, and perhaps also you know sharing some assumptions with Sarah Hill from This Is Your Brain on Birth right. Control that the life of the mind or put another way meaningful engagement with the world and the life of motherhood are irreconcilable and i think we did a decent job in the previous two podcasts kind of blowing that assumption to bits but also i mean if as soon as you as soon as i watched mary child and more i was like oh it really was like that it really was that's right (laughs) i feel like oh we're so mean to those ladies yeah yeah but i mean it's like everyone has to respond to the issues of their time yes our problems are not the same problems as theirs and i think it's true that their solutions to the problems they saw are now causing our problems Right. Or at least somebody, like, reading between the lines the wrong way is, yeah. Yes. Yeah. The the downstream effects of their solutions are creating some of our problems. And so we should not throw them under the bus. We need to remember, like, things really, they were dealing with some real legit problems that we don't have anymore because they kind of fixed them or they addressed them in some yes. way. And so we should be grateful while also being like, dang it, now I got to fix this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> trade-offs. So, yeah, trade-offs. That's right. Yes, I mean, and last time, you know, we did talk about how you can combine motherhood and intellectual creativity, whether that's at the same time or whether that's by living life in seasons and starting a career when your kids are older. Or having a very supportive husband. Yes, (laughs) absolutely. (laughs) Which we both do, right? Because it was much, much harder for women in the 50s and 60s to combine these things. Like you're saying, it was almost impossible then. We didn't have the cultural imagination or the technological tools to do it, you know, like contraception, like the internet. You know, to help women successfully integrate vocation and family. Well, and, so. and the sexism. Yeah. I mean, that's what you really get when you watch Mary Tyler Moore. Yeah. Like that interview in the beginning with that oh, guy. Oh, terrible. Oh, he like, you sexist asshole. I know. Shut up. She, she handled him very well, but yes, you could but see her. Fa- she Ooh, was seizing. She was together. Yeah. I mean, it just wasn't thinkable that women could right. or should have right. a career in the way that a man did. Right. No. It wasn't that it wasn't allowed it was like i mean it wasn't allowed because it wasn't conceivable right it was inconceivable it was just like what yeah you want a what (laughs) yeah i mean so in that older more stifling model i totally get why brown would choose the path of less housework more freedom more money to spend on herself you know especially since the pill made it possible for single girls to have sex without babies although that's more like in the the girls after her, the girls reading yeah. the book, would have she, that where she's she didn't kind of have past a pill. That point. So that's why I'm saying, seriously, how much sex do we think she was really having? So, do you think that that the book is kind of false advertising that she wasn't actually sleeping with all these men? I mean, she sure makes it sound like you know many a man has spent the night at her place. Like, but maybe this is like our discussion on Idocratic in episode three, right? Like where we will never really know how much sex she was having and where she got all her information and how much was made up or gotten by talking to others versus personal experience. I don't know. Um, but, but her language, you know, I guess if you've got a foal, you've got a foal is equating motherhood with being an animal. Again, it's this idea that the body is subhuman, that desire for children is bestial and mindless, that motherhood works against the mind and making money is more meaningful than raising kids. And that, to me, is just pure prejudice, I think. It's prejudice born of ignorance, as if motherhood wasn't a transformative experience that makes you into a different kind of person with new insights and new capacities and new gifts to offer the world, but rather it turns you into a fat, ugly zombie. (laughs) I call it, I think I call it bias instead of prejudice. Okay. Because I think in part she's reacting to a, a political idea of how of men saying women are only suited for motherhood. They're only animals. They can't, they have no brains. They, or, you know, they, they can't be trusted with learning math because they're too emotional. Oh gosh. So that it's that, it's that kind of, you know, regrettable. Mm. Um, so she's overreacting. Okay. But I also would admit that I think this is how some women who don't want to be mothers actually talk. Okay. I mean, <laughs> I mean, heard it. isn't that we, ha- how we have like, that's, that's the, 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 um, 
the term for this now is not if you got a full, you got a full. It's breeders. Oh, yeah. Right? Breeders, it's, yeah. And it's wrapped up now and all this other sort of, like, heteronormativity is yeah. is retro and, you know, queer people don't breed or whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so she's, so she's, I think she's ignorant of this bias in some ways because she's so committed to that point of, like, saying, I'm an iconoclast. I can, you know, these people are just following, you know, the, it's the lemmings going over the marriage and motherhood cliff. Okay. And she's like, Joan of Arc. Okay. <laughs> for, you know, for female executives or something. <laughs> but, so I don't think the problem is her, personally. I think the problem is that this idea, you know, as you get with the breeder thing, somehow becomes enshrined in our culture as a political idea. And in fact, even more concerningly, a feminist political idea. Yeah. It goes from a personal bias to some sort of political prejudice. And that's toxic. Oh. Because once it becomes politicized, then you get... You know, then you get the sort of pressures and then, or as Obama would say, the nudges of the state, mm. you know, able to, you know, in these directions that are, I think we could admit, antinatalist. It's antinatalist yes. to sterilize children because they, like, don't like their bodies. Right. I mean, that's just bonkers. Okay. But, you know, it's part of this politicization of mm-hmm. liberation, right? Right. Okay. All right. So that's interesting. So this idea that a personal bias based on preference and life circumstances becomes this regular part of feminist speak. Right. If you don't embrace it, you're part of the problem. Okay. So it's a bias turned platform. Yeah. So that's not yeah. good. <laughs> I think so. You know, and it, it reminds me of other things I've seen. So ah. on my side of the camp, right? Like the flip side is, you know, Christians who hold up signs that say God hates fags. It's like, no, he doesn't. It's just, you're turning your prejudice into a platform. It's your bias as a slogan. It's right. very so similar. Do it. It's very similar. I yeah. Think. Okay, so so maybe the intensity of Brown's snubbing of motherhood is simply a reaction to a past in which motherhood was valorized and singleness in women was stigmatized and belittled. You know, I mean, maybe she's calling mothers losers and sponges because people used to call single women spinsters and old maids. I think that's exactly right. it. Okay, so... She's trying to reverse the polarity of the yeah. insult, I guess. Okay, and, and it's like, that's human. I get it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's easier to... Seeing in that frame makes me feel a little more forgiving about it but I would hope that now in the 2020s that we could dispense with the name calling and the belittling and properly appreciate both singleness and marriage both being child-free and motherhood because and I think you and I would agree on this like both paths are good and legitimate and right and in fact I think we know I think the data suggests that most women do want children Mm -hmm. so again with something like homosexuality we can have acceptance and tolerance of the minority without politicizing it as some sort of superior mindset in terms of it's because it's marginal it's better that's what queer theory really is so in the same way we can say yes a woman has a right to have a child on her own or not have one at all but we don't have to pretend that somehow more enlightened because it's marginal exactly most women will will want children exactly and i think we both agree that marriage is better for children right there isn't one right path for every woman which means we don't need to stigmatize singleness which was the sin of the past but we also don't need to stigmatize motherhood which is in some ways the sin of the present i feel like so you know me i'm all for stigma but it has to be <laughs> has to be aimed properly right and neither single women nor married women nor mothers are proper targets of stigma yeah i think the proper targets are men who impregnate women and then don't become don't serve as fathers exactly I'll read this quote from Perry on motherhood. Okay. If you value freedom above all else, then you must reject motherhood, since this is a state of being that limits a woman's freedom in almost every possible way, not only during pregnancy, but also for the rest of her life, since she will always have obligations to her children, and they will always have obligations to her. It's a connection that is only ever severed in the most dire circumstances. Feminists have historically succeeded in challenging this restriction on freedom through advocating for greater availability of contraception and abortion, which has been effective up to a point, in that it has allowed women more of a say in when or if they have children. But what about when the children are actually born? Here we come upon an antinatalist streak in both liberal and radical feminist traditions that leaves mothers shut out, which means, even with historically low birth rates, that at least three-quarters of women are shut out. Motherhood is discussed in fewer than 3% of papers, journal articles, or textbooks on modern gender theory, but then less than half of tenured female academics have children, which makes the omission somewhat less surprising. The whole topic has slipped out of sight. And no wonder, since the logic of individualism collapses upon contact with motherhood. The pregnant woman's frame contains two people, neither of them truly autonomous, 
The unborn baby depends on the mother for survival, and the mother cannot break this physical bond except through medical intervention that will result in the baby's death. Even after birth, the mother-baby dyad remains a unit, tied together both emotionally and physically. And for many years following birth, the young child cannot be understood as an autonomous individual because, without the devoted care of at least one adult, death is a certainty. The psychoanalyst and pediatrician Donald Winnicott has, has written that, quote, there is no such thing as a baby, there is only a baby and someone. Which is 100%. And that's exactly, and I would argue, like, it should be a baby and somebody's. Right. Right, someone's. Exactly. <laughs> someone's. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a brilliant point that Perry's making. There is only a baby and someone, or someone's. And the logic of individualism collapses upon contact with motherhood. I mean, this is key. If your worldview can't metabolize and assimilate the fact of motherhood, you know, the fact of this non-autonomous interdependent dyad without which we have no future, you know, then your worldview is unsustainable. It's just wrong. And this is part of why discussing the sexual revolution is so interesting because it's a movement made possible by technology, the pill and safe legal abortion, which created a space between sex and motherhood, right? A space which used to not exist. Except, well, except as far as it was governed by luck. <laughs> yes, right. There's always luck, for sure. <laughs> but it not, it's not a controllable space. And it's not a very big one. Right. Because your luck is going to run out. And so the sexual revolution, as well as second and third wave feminism, is the story of what people choose to do with and in that technologically mediated space. Mm -hmm. You know, we talked earlier of Perry's idea of marriage as a quote unquote technology, which Mm. tames men and turns cads into dads. So marriage is a cultural technology, which evolved to deal with the perennial problematic gift or beautiful problem of pregnancy. Reliable contraception and safe abortion are also technologies that were developed to deal with pregnancy but these technologies, unlike marriage, frame pregnancy as solely a problem, as a problem full stop. They are blind to the beauty, to the gift of a new person entering your life as a surprise. You know, and those medical technologies aren't as flexible, or as spacious, as creative or nuanced as the cultural technology of marriage, in my opinion. In, in marriage, a pregnancy can be a source of anxiety and difficulty, or it can be a source of joy and celebration. But what it won't be is a complete and utter disaster. And in a culture that has by and large traded in the technology of marriage for the technology of contraception and abortion, pregnancy is made into a disaster. It's a sickness, right? And this means impending motherhood is a diagnosis devoutly to be avoided until you feel like you have total control over your life. And I think that this technology pathologizes motherhood and celebrates autonomy and freedom from limits. And as we've talked about in previous episodes, this is leading to a serious decline in the birth rate in developed countries to the point that some cultures are at risk of disappearing themselves in the next few decades, like South Korea. And so I think it goes without saying that worldviews that lead to self-destruction are not legitimate. But I know that the intention behind developing the pill was to allow women to enjoy sex without an undue burden of ill-timed motherhood or an undue fear of having chosen the wrong man. Or in marriage, it was to release the woman of the burden of the man's refusal to take no for an answer. That's right. That's right. A lot of this is men behaving badly. Why should the woman pay the price? That's the feminist. Right. Right. Again, it's a response to to men not behaving well. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And the intention of legalizing abortion was to allow women privacy, bodily integrity, and safety in the most intimate parts of their reproductive lives. And I, I agree. I think these are good intentions. They're meant to help women and to liberate women. But, you know, trade-offs, right? Mm-hmm. We ended up with a whole host of unintended side effects, some of which are deeply antinatalist and have a disintegrating effect on the family. And so while I think it's a grave mistake to criminalize abortion and contraception, it's also a grave mistake to think that we can make free use of them without changing patterns of male behavior at scale, right? Like, we can have the freedom and opportunity that contraception and abortion give us, but I think we sacrifice the cultural vitality of marriage and family on the altar of that freedom. And because the cost of these technologies is so great, it's worth asking whether we can try to jerry-rigger upgrade marriage to provide more of the freedom and opportunity that women want, rather than relying solely on a medical solution. It's, it's all about the trade-offs. And if you haven't memorized our accidental slogans... That's right. We got now, slogans. We got <laughs> mantras. <laughs> our mantras. You will we soon. We should make bookmarks. Oh, there you go. That'd be cool. That's right. I might do that. So here are some of them. There are no solutions, only trade-offs. Thomas Sowell! <laughs> the sacred cannot be monetized. 
and bring back stigma. <laughs> so the dark side of the sexual revolution is an attempt to repudiate all of these. It promises a monetized, market-based solution to the problem of wanting sex but not wanting babies, as well as the problem of wanting babies but not wanting sex. Surrogacy is human trafficking. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it promises freedom from stigma, freedom from commitment, and freedom for pleasure. And if you're lucky, it's even covered by insurance. It's quite the promise. It offers all of these things with the right hand, which is what Brown is talking about, but it takes away monogamy, stability, intimacy, safety, and fertility with the left hand, which is what Perry is talking about. So the sexual revolution giveth and the sexual revolution taketh away. And in particular, it, it, it takes it, it doesn't giveth and taketh equally among classes. That's right. Marriage rates are still pretty high among, you know, elites. Mm-hmm. That's as, right. As, you know, to use a... Charles Murray's term, the new elites, whatever. They were new then, I guess they're old now. (laughs) (laughs) But because wealthy people know that marriage is a good way to build wealth. In fact, divorce is the number one destroyer of wealth. That's right. So, I mean, if you, it's the classic, this is what Murray says in Coming Part. He says, you know, these new elites do not preach what they practice. Right. And I think the left really does believe that when human relationships create inequalities, like single motherhood in general, not always, Mm -hmm. but in general, single motherhood creates an inequality, the state not only should step in, but that its interventions can make the difference. The left really does believe that services can substitute for care. And I think Mm -hmm. this is where I went. I got Illich pilled. (laughs) I mean, I really feel like he he deserves his own color of pill. (laughs) Because I now think that is completely false. And I think it's like, it's worse than like, you know, just like a sort of, you know, supply side economics doesn't work or does work kind of political argument about that. I think it's like a lie. Mm. I think it's sort of like a crafty lie. Mm. I'm not against the social safety net because I feel like that would be ridiculous not to have one because there are things that social insurance, I think human societies are a form of social insurance. We've always had a kind of, I mean, gleaning, for example, in the Bible is Mm -hmm. a social insurance policy. Mm -hmm. Right? So, I mean... Every, every functional human society is going to have a social safety net. But this idea that we're going to, in this day and age, we're going to equalize outcomes with income transfers and social services, it just appears, it appears to be wrong on its face. Just ridiculous to me. Yeah. I, I think we performed a tragic national experiment on our nation's school children during COVID. Mm-hmm. And we proved, what we proved was that the poorest, most disadvantaged kids lost the most ground. And so I can hear the left saying, oh, but don't you see how valuable all our services are? Because it proves that if we didn't provide them an education, these kids are lost. Which, I mean, we should have free public education. Big, I mean, I was educated at a public university. Mm -hmm. The state paid for me to get my PhD. They did not get a good deal. (laughs) (laughs) But my point is the opposite. And I've said this about abortion access, too. You can't count on the state. The state is fickle. Mm -hmm. As soon as there was a risk of getting sick, the teachers' unions weren't on the side of those children who needed those services desperately. They Mm. were on the side of Zoom school. They were on the side of making three-year-olds wear masks for two years. That's messed up. That's a natural human response. I get that. But it reveals the truth about services as opposed to care. One is conditional. The other isn't. That's right. And in a different society, like in different times and different places, when death from this kind of stuff was just more normalized you would have people volunteering during epidemics and stuff people life kept going because someone had to just like yeah. you saw you know health workers mm-hmm. during covid do yeah because some people can't opt out of the risk that's right and that's what care is mm-hmm. right you can't mm-hmm. opt out of the risk because you're socially bound yeah i read an article the other day in the paper being like you know, my mother's, you know, been in assisted living for X years. How, I can't believe it's costing this much. Like, what does it cost? Like, you know, the cost of elder care is it draws into, you know, decades. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's a service. Of course it costs. And of course it's like, it's built in there. That's that's the brilliance of Illa. She's saying scarcity and is built into these models where everything is a service. That's right. But when it's your house and you're just in the normal way of life is just providing sustenance of people who are in your household it's not cost no it's it's not it's care and it's living right yeah and we really we we feel like if the state any if anything that happens that potentially impedes your personal 100 percent autonomy (laughs) please mr state come and take it away take my aging relative to the care home let me have an abortion and of course um, as pro-choice as they come but 
it's part of a piece of this idea that the only way to be self-actualized, and then we see this at the extreme with the trans thing, like, mm-hmm. the only way I can be happy is you let me cut off my breasts. I mean, this is cockamamie. It, it, it doesn't go, it doesn't get any better. It seems to just go deeper and deeper and deeper into the depths of hell. <laughs> it's so interesting to hear you as a, as a liberal just making note of all the things that the state can't do or shouldn't do. Or like, why are we relying on it so much to do these things that are, that are for men and women to do, that are for families yes. to do, that are for neighbors to do. That yes. Are communities. God communities help us with that do. word. But right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Real human beings in the flesh who care. Showing up for each other. Yes. And that's hard. Baked into care is this idea that you will not be autonomous and that your outcomes will not be equal. Because if you mm-hmm. have a sick mother that you have to care for for, de- for a decade and you have a friend who's free of that, well, you're not going to fe- your lives aren't equal. No. I mean, isn't the first thing you're supposed to learn that life's not fair? It's just not. No. I mean, Wow. I mean, that's, I guess that's, that's a hard lesson to swallow. Yeah. But that's what it is at the heart of it. It's this sort of fantasy that if I recognize something that makes me different and for women, it's their body and the potential of of bringing life and the obligation once you bring that life to care for that life. Yeah. If I sense that that makes me less able to do another thing, that's wrong. And it's like, that's not wrong. That's just reality. We have, we are a sexually dimorphic species. You can't, you can't do anything about that. <laughs> you can't fix it. That's right. It's not there to be fixed. It's there to build. I mean, that's why Illich's insight is so, is so mm-hmm. remarkable because he's like, that's why society is gendered because we have to bring into culture a way to navigate this thing mm-hmm. that is not fixable. It is the essence that's of how right. we are. Right. That our limitations require care. And our so limitation, this, this man-women difference, yep. is the limitation that creates our possibility. That's right. That's right. The limits create the possibilities. Yes. Yeah. It's like a. Yeah. It's like in writing. There's this term called constraints, where you like. Mm-hmm. I wrote a poem. I wrote a book of poems once, where it's called four words, or um, actually, was it called that? Because that violates the constraint. But anyway, um, all <laughs> the words and all the poems were only four letters long. Oh wow! Yeah, I bet it was very creative. It, you had to... it got a little old in the end. <laughs> I, I won't lie, but that's what a constraint is. And so, yes. constraints are used in writing, like even genre is a kind of constraint. It's a mild yep. one, but mm-hmm. constraints are used in writing to sort of channel creative op- opportunities because right. sometimes you feel overwhelmed if it's endless, if it's endlessly optional. Right? That's right. There's no that's form. Right. So sexual dimorphism is an evolved expression of like, well, we got a constraint here. (laughs) This is how we're going to do it. We can do a lot of things with it. And Uh lots lots of cultures have different answers to how gender should work. That's right. But the constraint is you got two of them because you assign one to each sex. Yeah. And there are two different paths of wisdom. I remember hearing the evolutionary biologist Brett Weinstein talk about that. Like there's like this male path of wisdom and this female path of wisdom that they just approach life differently in a somewhat irreconcilable way mm. and so you really need both perspectives on reality and they have to keep talking to each other and accommodating each other and working with each other but the constraint produces literally produces fruitfulness mm. as well as you know cultural fruitfulness but certainly people <laughs> it makes more people right <laughs> so yeah the constraints are good they just yeah. are. I mean, like I said, I think in a tweet the other day, gender isn't good or bad. It just is. Right. So work, learn to work with it. <laughs> I mean, maybe, maybe some women just can't reconcile themselves to the fact that they weren't born male. I think I can admit that in my life would have been really different if I was a man. And I could say that I probably would have been more successful. But I don't use that as an excuse. And I also just don't. I'm over it. Like, why spend your life like that? And there's also a sense that, like, you wouldn't have been you if you were male. Of course. You You wouldn't have had any, everything you would experience, you wouldn't have your life. Right. Right. You would have have been a different person. Exactly. Because even in the womb, like, the hormones going over your brain and, like, everything is different. There is no, like, version of you that just happens to be Exactly. Right. Like, it's it's not a a person. It's a totally different person, right? Exactly. Yeah. That's That's how it is. But, I mean, we can acknowledge that life's not fair, and we can also acknowledge that 
in that space of life not being fair, you can just accept. I imagine it would be horrible to wake up every day and be like, oh, I wish I'd been born a man. That would be horrible. Yeah. But that, to me, is not a problem that technology can fix. No. That's a problem to just... That's a psychological obstacle. Like, so many other psycholo- psychological obstacles. Right. Like, anxiety, or depression, or low self-esteem, or right. whatever. Yeah. There's some things that technology shouldn't get its fingers into. And I think that that type of a problem is more for, it's more for relationships or something like it's for people to help one another. in. it's not, it's not something you, you purchase a surgery or you purchase a product to get better. I think we should end by coming back to where we began to our early knowledge of sex and maybe even our early experiences mm-hmm. after women being lured with false fertility promises into unplanned childlessness. I think the biggest losers in the sexual revolution are the young. Mm -hmm. That's the part of the book that really made me sad, of Perry's book. Brown, for all her faults and vapidity, is leagues ahead in enjoyment, responsibility, and even integrity than these poor college students, right? Perry discusses the observations of a student at Middlebury College, describing how a social norm of emotionless sex seemed to impose itself as some sort of conformity regime under the guise of progressivism and individual choice. So, and I'm quoting Perry, who then will quote uh, this woman she's talking about. Leah Fessler had written thoughtfully about her time as, as a student at Middlebury College, an institution in which hookup culture reigned and where abstinence seemed to be the only way in which a female student could avoid participating. Unwilling to commit to celibacy, Fessler convinced herself that emotionless sex was the feminist thing to do, and she did her best to ignore her unhappiness. Aww. After I began having... So this is... This is Leah. Mm-hmm. After I began having sex with these guys, the power balance always tipped. A few hookups in, I'd begin to obsess primarily about the ambiguity of it all. My friends and I would analyze incessantly, does he like me? Do you like him? He hasn't texted in a day. Read this text. I'm so confused. He said he didn't want anything, but keeps asking to hang out. With time, inevitably, came attachment. And with attachment came shame, anxiety, and emptiness. Oh, Isn't that so sad? sad? So this is Perry. Leading into another quote, the worst thing for women at Middlebury were the pseudo-relationships. And here's Leah describing one of those, what they are. The mutant children of meaningless sex and loving partnerships. Two students consistently hook up with each other, and typically only each other, for weeks, months, even years. Yet per unspoken social code, neither party is permitted emotional involvement, commitment, or vulnerability. To call them exclusive would be clingy or even crazy. Mm. Fessler and her friends quietly admitted to each other that what they really wanted was true intimacy, public recognition of a relationship, an arm around the waist, a hand held in daylight. Man. That's, this is awful. Yeah. And I, I gotta say, this is not Brown's fault. (laughs) I mean, she sounds like she is advocating using people in some sort of cruel detachment, all that. But again, I think most of that is just talking coy about courtship. Whereas these kids wouldn't even know how to appreciate courtship because they've been schooled to think that it's a product of the evil patriarchy and must be destroyed. And not just the women. Clearly the men have been schooled that way too. Right? Right? Man. I'm going to repeat, I think, myself again. The danger here is that these young women cannot think about their experiences from their own perspective. Mm. Politics is, by definition, a realm of action outside the personal. And so it's not a coincidence that women are making decisions about their own intimacy based on how it looks, what it means, because the sexual revolution was literally the movement that told you to politicize your own intimacy. The personal is political. That is, quite frankly, a crock of shit, because it basically tells women to ignore what they feel and act according to what their sexual choices signify. That's so messed up. It's performative sexuality, right? Which, I mean, we've got a lot of that now. Now, of course, we needed a political movement to win rights particularly in regard to reproductive choice and employment discrimination. Mm-hmm. But it's very much like with the movement for gay rights. The normies in the movement get what they want and leave, <laughs> and then the hardcore ideologues take over the infrastructure and use it to promote a far more radical cause. Mm-hmm. That's how you get both trans rights are human rights and sex work is real work. Mm-hmm. It's the it's the gays who wanted tolerance in gay marriage have gone, have exited, mm-hmm. and it's the women who wanted abortion rights and discrimination law. Mm-hmm. And now... And they left. Brown would be appalled by the idea, I think, that a woman should be proud of selling sex. Mm-hmm. 
Although I did note with some irony that her retrograde takes on homosexuality sadly fit right in <laughs> with today's gender woo. Yep. She explicitly calls gay men girls. Yeah. I which saw was a that. common that was the trope. If you were not heterosexual, that was that's what the trope of heteronormativity normativity is. If you're not I mean they used to call it like sexual inversion. Like you mm-hmm. you were basically the wrong way around. Like mm-hmm. they just didn't have a paradigm that couldn't see it as just a preference. Mm-hmm. We could certainly remit, lament her backwardness on this, but common at the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think she's breaking any ground there. No. But that very backwardness is a once again alive and well. A certain gay mm-hmm. aesthetic is now labeled and embraced as girlhood. This is what Dylan Mulvaney was doing yeah. for the last year. <laughs> Andrew Sullivan has called this thing that Dylan Mulvaney has going, he's called it minstrelsy, oh, which I think is brilliant. That's a great I mean, Sullivan word is for great. It. I'll yes. put a link to where he says that in the show notes. Because it's an act, right? Dylan doesn't actually believe he's female, claims Sullivan, and I agree. He's just a gay actor preening for an audience. And it's gone very well for him in that department. He's wealthy now. Mm. And he was not getting noticed. If you watch some of his earlier videos before the girlhood thing, it I mean, he wasn't famous. Yeah. This made him famous. So I think Sullivan is correct, but I think the larger point is that neither these women nor Dylan are able to think about themselves from the inside. Gosh. Right? And there can be no intimacy without the privacy required for thoughts from the inside to take place. And, worse still, it does it get worse? It gets worse. <laughs> Once a woman adopts a political way of seeing her own sexuality, there is no bottom. Yeah. This is how you get stories about women wondering if it's okay to ask their partners not to choke them during sex. Hmm. I mean, I pity single people. Like, if you were like... You know, trying to go back in the dating market after after divorce, say, and it's changed, and so it's much. like it's changed so much that you just you don't have you don't have any sexual priors. I'd be terrified. Oh my goodness! This is how you get courses in universities about how to use sex work, be it escorting or cam girling, to pay your fees, and this is how you get women women signing up on a website to meet men whose stated interest in them isn't affection or intimacy, but sex and control. It's prostitution filling in the hole. That has been left by the supposedly feminist evacuation of courtship and dating as patriarchal and demeaning to women. But if that's feminism, bring back patriarchy. We're putting that on a new slogan. slogan. If this is feminism, bring back patriarchy. (laughs) So I'm going to quote from the Julie Bindle article that she wrote on this topic. Mm -hmm. It's about a site. It's a site for sugaring, which is like sugar daddy, like selling yourself to be... It's prostitution. Anyway, Judy learned about Seeking Arrangement, that's the name of the site, from her friend at work. I was earning five pounds an hour in a coffee bar and couldn't, could not even pay my rent, let alone go out and have fun. I signed up and was immediately inundated with requests to meet from nice-looking men. Initially, Judy says she met some quite nice men and was taken for meals, and after sex was paid between 260 to $650. It felt like very high-class prostitution, but prostitution nevertheless, Judy says, which it is. Mm -hmm. And so her conclusion was, sugaring is nothing like regular dating. This is Judy. Mm -hmm. We are just a set of orifices for men to use and the occasional bit of arm candy. Oh, that just makes me feel nauseous. I mean, yeah. No, that whole article was nauseating. I am a set of orifices for a man to use. Like, is that what feminism fought for? Right. For women to feel free to... To perceive be of themselves to be exploited <laughs> orifices do we really have to explain to so-called feminists these days that that's not liberating right. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that this is not what empowerment looks like mm. <laughs> I mean power differentials hierarchies that's just a fact of life Brown's world was full of them I mean she really lived in a society where she didn't really have any valid expectation at the beginning of when she was 19 that she'd be editor of Cosmo. Right. She probably wasn't thinking like that. Mm-hmm. But she took a different approach when it came to powerful men. Mm-hmm. This is, I'm going to read a quote from the first part of the book where she's telling women to make a list of the men they know. There's your boss, surely among the most important men you'll ever know if you're lucky enough to have a nice one. I think maybe a girl should never work for a stinker. Life is too short, and as long as we are in in more or less of a boom economy, it's possible to change jobs easily. I'm thinking of secretaries who have a particularly personal relationship with the boss. I got a job as secretary to an advertising agency head. Well, I had no idea bosses could be like that. Kind, warm, generous. 
Mr. B was a civic and industrial leader as well, and through our offices strode some of the most important people in America. That's how I met a number of the men to whom I became the girl. I worked for him five years, and he was responsible for my getting a chance to write advertising copy. His wife is one of my best friends, and through the years, they introduced me to hundreds of exciting people. So, okay, we can bemoan the backwardness of a time when men ran the business world and women were secretaries. But how do you think some of those women went on to become editors like Brown did? Mm. Because they had male mentors. Exactly. They focused, so women like Brown focused on the good, virtuous, service-minded men and stayed the heck away from the predators and mean bosses. Brown was into frugality and writing to her landlord to lower her rent. That's probably like my my favorite vignette in the whole book. Yeah. Not some pipe dream of putting some skimpy pics on OnlyFans and thinking she's going to buy a house with her earnings. Mm. She's based. I mean, <laughs> apart from all that, if you got to fall, you got to fall, which is stupid. But she's based mm-hmm. in, in this reality-oriented yeah. mindset. She's not being sure. like, oh, gosh, why do women have to do all this? Oh, that's right. you know, she's not. She's operating within the, the framework that's there, and she's shrewd about it. She's smart about right. it. Right. It's just such a pity that when... That what she was really talking about, being a, woman, being a woman of the world so you can be respected, successful, and when you find the right one, married, has been perverted and spun out into this obviously stupid fantasy that the secret to empowerment is avoiding intimacy and acting like, or in fact being, a prostitute. That's such a great point. I, because you're never going to meet a virtuous man on a site designed for non-virtuous men. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's obvious. Yeah. Yeah. That's not feminism to say that you should meet an unvirtuous man. That's the problem with this feminist crap. It doesn't, it, it pretends there's no virtue. Right. It or it depends like virtue has no impact on your outcomes. It's just consent and transactional and you do you. And it's like, life doesn't work like that. Exactly. And as if all men were the same. As if they're just, because they're men, they are this way. It's like, no, the difference between good men and bad men is enormous and makes an enormous difference but I will say like I part of me wishes that Brown had written work in the single girl Definitely. rather than sex in the single girl probably not as good as seller <laughs> because I like I mean I appreciate very much like the intelligence and the shrewdness with which she managed you know the fact of the inevitability of hierarchy she was smart she was hard working she came up with some ingenious strategies for accomplishing her goals and that made for good reading and I enjoyed those parts but I, I just got so distracted by, like, the breezy sex bits that I kind of lost that meaningful thread about work. So I'm glad you brought that out. And I also benefited. I still benefit from the mentorship of older men in my working life who have looked out for me. Me too. Gave me opportunities. Gave me encouragement. Like, just a few weeks ago, you know, an older man who's encouraging me in my writing. You know, we went out for coffee and we talked for an hour. And he was so kind and good to me. And, you know, just trying to help me think what could be next for me. And how are things going for me? And can he, you know, connect me with someone else? Like, he was just how to pave the way to encourage me. Mm-hmm. I was like, that's a good man. <laughs> you know, and you you know them. I know them. It's That's just invaluable. You know, but I'm also with you that this idea that intimacy avoidance is empowerment is just completely backwards. It's an inversion of the truth. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Perry has this chapter titled Loveless Sex is Not Empowering. And I'd go further and I'd say loving sex is empowering. Oh, I like that so much better. <laughs> That's, it's, a, it's a positive thing. That has been my experience in life. And I think most girls know this deep down in their feelings. You know, and both modern sex ed and for sure pornography school them out of that natural intuition. I think that's an ingrained kind of biological component of women to want to want that intimacy and to to feel to feel vulnerable and then to feel loved in the vulnerability and all of that. I think that I think we are just geared that way. And so all that like the self-talk you'd have to do to hush yourself up mm-hmm. and shut yourself up mm-hmm. to have to act in this political manner. Mm-hmm. I just it seems so like self-abusive. It well, seems like the psychological form of cutting. Like no. Yes. Don't don't call the guy. I don't, don't like care. The guy. I don't care if he doesn't call. I don't care if he doesn't right. call. Yes. Yes. That's really, yes. That's really nice. And I think some of it is is loving. Being loved is empowering. Mm-hmm. It's the intimacy. Mm-hmm. You know, the sex is the bonus room. Right. right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, women know. We know instinctually we are vulnerable because that because men want to have sex with women. Mm-hmm. We all know that. Mm-hmm. And so to be around a man that you can trust, 
is empowering by virtue of the fact oh, that yeah. you don't have to worry about your safety. Right. You can relax. You can and relax. The whole parts of you can turn on exactly. when you're not anxious and guarding exactly. yourself. Exactly. So I think it has to do with safety. Mm-hmm. I mean, as the liberal here, I have to say, I don't have any moral issues with casual sex. It's not the sex part of it. I, I mean, I believe that the world isn't going to end if you go home with someone and it's kind of meh. <laughs> or it's great, but you don't talk again. Those things happen. Where those things go wrong, it's not about sex per se. It's about vulnerability. It's about virtue. It's about falling into an unvirtuous situation. Mm. So it's the lesson around the sex act, right? It's the politics that tells women and men that this consent-based casualness is all they should aspire to. That, in fact, casual sex is a liberated superior choice to genuine intimacy. But it is not. It never will be. Yeah. Brown is right, even in, in even if she has an offensive way of saying it, that marriage is insurance for when you're older. I mean, this is something I really appreciate because it really is easy to be single in your 20s and 30s. And it's manageable in your 40s and 50s. But living alone into your 60s and beyond gets a lot harder. Yeah. Because you don't just want someone who you know isn't going to hurt you. You want intimacy. You want a partnership. Right. You want support. You don't want services. You want care. Ah, ding, yes, yeah. ding, ding, ding. Mm-hmm. I mean, life gets more complicated as you age. You're likely to have a health issue here and there. And, like, mm-hmm. yes, health care is a human right. This whole idea that, you know, the state owes you something, that's an overlay on a society that has to have something before there's a state. That's right. The family <laughs> exists before the state. The family, the tribe, whatever yes. you mm-hmm. want to call it or have it look like. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not rocket science why married men live longer, for instance, mm-hmm. because they're getting care. Right. And care matters. Yeah. And that's not something you can replace with a service. That's I right. mean, partnership and marriage, they are common cultural institutions across time and geography because they work. That's right. They are a good trade-off. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So why are we teaching young people that cultivating intimacy through rituals like in-person socializing and official dating is somehow backwards unfeminist, illiberal, and generally uncool? Why are we condemning a generation to live lives without deep, committed love, without the partnerships we know are valuable? Mm. Not to mention that it turns out that this attitude against intimacy doesn't even lead to young people having more sex. That's right. There's less sex happening. Yeah, exactly. Instead of going out and exploring those feelings, and there's plenty to explore, even Mm -hmm. if you rule out sex, sex... You know, you can go to fir- from to first and to third, and you can you can not you can save home play for later. Instead of you know doing any of that, they are sitting at home labeling themselves with sexual identities and fussing over their pronouns. It frankly sounds like hell. It does sound. Awful. I mean, there's no amount of money you could pay me to relive the years from like 13 <laughs> to 28, but like it's awful. Yeah. But at the same time, yeah. this has got to be worse. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, man, I agree. I mean, maybe we need a new slogan. You know, bring back dating. Bring back courtship. Bring right? back chivalry. <laughs> bring back chivalry. <laughs> you know, I would hope that that's something that both religious and secular folks could agree on, right? Regardless of what is or isn't happening behind closed doors afterwards, right? Can, can we as a culture revitalize what happens in the restaurant, on the park bench, on a walk, at the movies, in a handwritten letter at the dinner table, right? Like, are there public rituals of courtship and romance? Like, are, are they recoverable without the Judeo-Christian mythos that used to ground it? I know chivalry kind of arose within the sort of medieval Christendom model, you know, but for everybody's sake, I hope it's recoverable because it's, again, you know, virtue and happiness are the same thing. I think it, I think it would be good for everyone. Um, We're going to have to burn some stuff down first. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> make some space i mean i hope that internet porn and dating apps like tinder fall away from us culturally in the way that cigarettes did that's a great analogy actually smoking used to be cool everybody was doing it and then we began to uncover the hidden harms and cigarettes became uncool because they were recognized as dangerous and then a lot of people stopped and a lot more never even started you know so perhaps a book like perry's is like the surgeon general's warning you know anti-intimate sex is bad for your mental and physical health <laughs> you know maybe it'll catch on right maybe mm. porn sites and dating apps should have warning labels on them may lead to impotence anxiety and depression right like i'm sort of joking but i'm sort of not joking like I-, I take cigarettes as an example because that was a cultural habit that we collectively stigmatized and now we're enjoying the health benefits of having done so and that means that a collective response like that is possible 
It's also a really good analogy because a lot of, like, the harms were known, but you weren't allowed to say it. It was the combination of, obviously, the nefariousness on the part of the cigarette companies who had done the research and knew knew it was harmful. But also, just the kind of common sense denialism. Because, I mean, you know, the whole thing about doctors recommending cigarettes and stuff. No, I don't know about that. Oh, my God. Yeah, doctors doctors used to be in, like, there's, fame, you know, the, the the cigarette preferred by doctors. Yeah, that was the thing. Oh, gosh. Yeah. And, and so was there a long period of time where people were all still doing it and noticing each other, all still smoking, and yet everyone kind of knew, this is kind of bad for there us There was now, a long period of You don't want to be the denial. one to say it. Yes. Because yeah. it took a while, because, you know, that... And this is re- this is reasonable that because it took a while to understand the actual pathology of why smoking caused lung cancer, like the specific steps. Yeah, they had the statistics that it suggested the correlation, mm-hmm. but it took a while for the science on causation to be specified. But I suspect that it's really very similar to what's going on with this whole gender stuff. Is that People are just making it up and talking over it and just covering up their own, you know, instincts about it. I mean, I'm sure there's got to be doctors who must know that even if they're towing the line, they must really instinctively know that this is not helping. Right. I don't know how they can keep doing that because a cigarette is nothing like doing an operation on a healthy person to make them less healthy. Right, right. And there's that, like, that sunk cost problem. It's like once you've done one surgery... Or once you've gone, once you've helped however many kids transition, it's like any turning around becomes this admission of guilt of something very yes. Very you will have awful. to you have to shoulder that burden, which is why parents can yeah. become radicalized if they have a right. kid and they make this decision that that's what their kid needs. Right. And there's they no turning there's back no, for they that. can't. How do you? We're gonna have to deal with that. We're gonna have to have a way of coping with that. And I think there was the sense socially that. Cigarettes have become so normalized in society that there was this sense of like we can't take this away, right? Like it's we can't live without this. Uh-huh. It's a way of life, and it's like it's like almost like today. Are. Today the discourse would be it's a human right, right? We were able to sort of revise the cultural expectations about yes. cigarette smoking, yeah, completely, very much so. The stigma completely shifted from cool to gross. You know, like and so, like like, uh, like you can't do that around me. Yeah, like I, that's not acceptable. Like right. I'm, <laughs> I'm gonna put it out for me. you. You're right. endangering me. You can't do that. Right. So. And, and it's I don't know. Was it a couple of decades that took to oh, really yeah. turn around? Oh, yeah. But but it's like that. That just gives me hope that like in, in the you know in the not too distant past we were able to you know stigmatize something that was dangerous for many people and for our culture. And I think, did it start happening when the the cigarette advertisers were really starting to target children? They're starting to advertise to children. And I feel like maybe that was part of... Yeah, I, I certainly wrong the science of addiction. When the when we started to understand the science of addiction, that you could basically get a smoker for life if you gave them enough yes. nicotine at a, before a certain point. Yeah. Yeah, I right. think that people made that. And it's, it's interesting because smoking rates, again, fewer elites smoke the non-elites mm-hmm. it's smoking is still very class correlate mm-hmm. except among graduate students where i never met as many smokers as i did in graduate school yeah <laughs> they just so stressed they were just like like it was like so uncool it was cool i guess okay part of the persona part of the persona <laughs> the gender stuff is really weird that way because this also is a class phenomenon but in the reverse that's right it's the upper class it's the it's, this really, is a very really yeah upper it. class Phenomenon. And there's a huge difference between, like, you know, cigarette companies mm-hmm. versus, like, physicians and therapists. You know, like, they're so, so, in terms of, like, who are you going to make the scapegoat for this? You know, it's easier to kind of scapegoat a big company be like, oh, those terrible cigarette companies and advertisers, you know. And you kind of scapegoat them and move on. But, like, what do you do when it's, you know, doctor, it's the family doctor and it's the therapist and it's parents. It's your, te- and it's, it's your school's it's your it's your teacher. teacher. Right. That's like, oh my word, that hits so close to home. You don't have like a clean cut. There's the big bad guy who's addicting us. It's like, oh shoot, what have we done? What are we doing next time? I don't think we've decided. Oh shoot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, to be determined. 
TBD. Oh wait, I do know what we're doing. What's that? We talked about this, but then we forgot. Okay. We're I've I've we're gonna do like um, opposites attract. I guess we're calling it. We're gonna oh. do Phyllis Schlafly with uh, with Andrea Dworkin. Yes. <laughs> That'll <laughs> so be we're exciting. Gonna, with the, like the horseshoe of like the <laughs> rabid conservative and the radical feminists meeting on things about like you know both. That's the theme. They both know what a virtuous man is. That's the connection, right? Because they're both anti-porn. Because they know that virtuous men don't do that to women. That's right. It's going to be so interesting. It's going to be awesome. Yeah, my mother laughed when I told her I'd ordered Phyllis Schlafly's book. (laughs) But I'm saying, no, it's all good. We're reading Dworkin, too. (laughs) That'll be great. Yeah, so the next time we'll be extra, extra (laughs) X-rated. Because it'll all be about, like, you know, reading about porn. (laughs) All right. We'll see you all next time. Bye-bye.